Hello and welcome to The Agent, an audio magazine collecting stories, poems, essays, and other written work from MCNY's student body and its community. I'm your host and founder of The Agent, Jared Berman, and in this edition I'm excited to bring you excerpts from four short stories recorded live during So You Think You Can Write, a creative writing contest that was held recently in an American Urban Studies creative writing class. Additionally, we've got two poems submitted from friends of MCNY that I think you'll enjoy. Our first piece comes to us from Scott Freed, a comic book writer living and working in New York and former co-host of mine for the Time for Pizza podcast. His poem is entitled, Three-Legged Dog. Three-Legged Dog. Three-Legged Dog only got three legs. Can't walk or run, hops everywhere. Three-legged dog, don't jump. Can't go upstairs, only goes down. Three-legged dog, hard to lay down, worse to get up. Still comes when cold. Three-legged dog, wags his tail, smiles, thinks he's got four legs. Our next piece, The Unknown Astronaut, comes from Jonathan Burke, an urban studies student, and is the first entry in the So You Think You Can Write contest. Good evening. Uh, The title of my piece is called The Unknown Astronaut. Uh, And this piece spawned out of an idea based on a writing writing prompt. Um, I... I've always been fascinated with astronomy and astronomers, and one of, in my opinion, one of the greatest uh, feats America has ever done is walk on the moon. And so, thinking about that, I always thought about, you know, we always talk about Buzz Aldrin and um, Neil Armstrong and Michael Collins, and we associate them with the first men on the moon. However, I always thought about what if there was someone else that never made it to the moon with them, and what happened? What happened to that person? I'm sure there was plenty of people who, you know, went to school, same school they did. And so I thought about that. So this piece, although fictional, has a lot of real-life uh, connotation to it. And so the story takes place in, um, in Patrick, who is the father, his house. Um, he is talking to his son. And it is the day of the, when the first humans landed on the moon. So it's happening right now. He just saw it on TV. He just saw it happen. His wife, he's upset. Um, and you will see why he's upset in a second. Okay? And so I'm going to read the middle of the, uh, middle of the piece and, and go from there. Josh. 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 Yes, Daddy? Come here, son. Let me teach you the greatest lesson that I can teach you ever in life. I want to take you, I want you to take my life as an example as to what not to do and make your life better for you and your family. The year was 1950. I was 25 years old. I had all of my life ahead of me. I had just graduated from the University of Southern California with a degree in aeronautical engineering. I graduated at the top of my class. In my senior year, due to a research project that I was in charge of, along with two other students, Neil and Buzz, I was becoming a highly sought-after engineer. Our project and research received many awards. 
All of us were awarded scholarships to MIT. Not only did every university want us, but every major space company did also. I was young, smart, gifted, and handsome. Everybody knew that I would be the one to be the game changer in the space world. Dad, said Josh, no. Boy, don't dad me. I'm teaching you something, boy. That's the problem with you young kids. You don't ever want to stop and listen. All you want to do is play, play, play. But these are lessons I'm teaching you for your life. Oh, yeah. Back to what I was saying. I finished grad school at MIT along with Neil and Buzz. We all was hired right out of school and went to, went to work for NASA. What is NASA, said Josh? The National Aeronautics and Space Administration. It was a government agency started that in 1958 that had a space program that, stu- that studied outer space. At the time, there was a race between the U.S. and the USSR to be the first country to send man to the moon. Patrick, let Josh go play. He doesn't want to hear all this, said Mary. No, woman, he needs to hear this. Like I was saying, NASA hired the top four guys out of the in, in, top four guys in the country: Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, and I. Our mission was to figure out a way to get man to the moon. I had already developed the plans during grad school. Everybody knew that I would be the commander of the mission that would take us to the moon. NASA even moved me to Florida. I met so many fascinating people. The nightlife was amazing. The 50s and the 60s were the best party years. Man, did we have some crazy times back then. Even though I was working 12-hour days, I partied all night. I started dating models. I was going to orgy parties, drug parties, drinking parties. Every night was a new adventure. I traveled to New York, California, Europe, and the rest of the world. You see, son, when you're on top, everybody wants to be with you. Everybody wants a piece of you. Everybody wants to be your friend. You get things for free. People give up everything just to be around you and associated with you. What about the other guys, said Josh. You see, Neil, you see, Neil, Mike, and Buzz were all married at the time. They were whipped by their wives, so they didn't want to go anywhere. I mean, your mom was around, but I wasn't going to be one of those loser guys that didn't do anything. Dad, I don't think you should talk this way, especially with mom in the kitchen. I mean, your mom did leave me for a while, but I didn't care. I wanted to be free. I wanted to keep it that way. Listen, son, I'm almost done. So for five years, after the fail, after ten failed missions, ten failed missions to the moon, Buzz, Michael, and I were chosen to go to fly Apollo 11. I was assigned commander in chief of the position. Everybody knew that we would be the first to make it to the moon successfully. I was so excited. I was even partying more. More drugs, more drinking, more sex became a daily routine. Sometimes I hit I had a hit and a bar I had a hit and a beer just to wake up in the morning to keep going. But because I was able to do my work, no one ever noticed or saw it as a problem. On March 1st, 1969, we had to go for our physicals to be cleared for the mission. These damn people tested everything. I passed all the previous tests before, so I wasn't really worried. Three days later, I was called into the office by Dr. Green. He said, he sat me down and said, Patrick, I don't know how to tell you this, but you will not be able to fly on a Power 11 mission. Huh? What are you talking about, Doc? I said, well... We found a lot of spots on your lungs. We sent your blood work to another lab in New York, and it seems that you developed lung cancer. This is quite serious. It seems that it's, the cancer has spread not only to your lungs, but to your liver as well. 
It seems that your body is breaking down from the years of smoking and drinking. I don't think we'll be able to do anything to treat it. It's very severe. Dad, what are you saying? said Josh. Well, son, the, de- the doctor later explained to me that I had developed cancer in the lungs and liver, which caused me to become sick and will cause me to die. Die? Yes, son, die. Doctors are afraid to treat it because they say it's too late. Had they caught it earlier, they may would have been able to do something to treat it. But I didn't go for regular checkups. I never went to the doctor like your mother wanted me to. They found out too late. I've been going through various tests, and they're studying my body, but they don't know what to do next, son. It's like I have a permanent cold. That's why I keep losing weight. You see, people always say that my fast lifestyle would always catch up to me, but I didn't understand it. Your mother begged me for years and years to stop smoking and drinking. Dad, don't cry, said Josh. No, listen. This is the lesson I'm trying to teach you. I made bad choices in life. I had to resign from NASA. That's why we even moved back to Ohio. The doctors gave me only a few months to live. But I don't think about that. Look at the TV, son. Buzz, Neil, Michael. They're on the moon right now. They'll forever be remembered in history. And I won't. You have to make good decisions in life. Your grandmother used to always say to me, the race is not given to the swift nor the strong, but the one who endures to the end. I didn't understand her. I thought I was invincible. I thought I could live life any kind of way I wanted to. But son, what you do when you're younger does come back to haunt you when you get older. You have to be a man of integrity. Promise me, you won't do drugs, drink alcohol, and you'll save yourself for your, for your wife in marriage. Seriously, son, listen to what I'm saying. I won't be around to see my grandchildren. I won't be around to probably see you becoming a man and do great things. What you do when you're younger has effect when you get older. You understand me, son? Yes, Dad. Seriously, son, I may not be there to see you graduate, but I want you to be successful in life. Look at me now. I'm a 44-year-old man who at one point had it all in my life, and now I'll probably die within the next few months not fulfilling all of my potential without reaching all the goals I set for my life, all because of careless, dumb, and poor mistakes. You see, Neil wasn't as smart as me, wasn't as strong as I was, but he endured and lived a good, God-fearing life. And because of that, he's now successful. His name will always be remembered for the rest of history. 60, 70 years from now, your kids, grandkids, their kids will read about his work read about his name, have schools named after him, and they will never have heard of me. So son, work hard, keep God first, and you will be successful in life. The next story excerpt from So You Think You Can Write comes from Bow student Dvorka Zulj from a larger piece entitled Unexpected Truth. I should note that Dvorka initially read two excerpts from the story, along with a brief introduction to her piece, but due to a recording error, only her second excerpt is presented. Please enjoy. This will be next my next excerpt. Marta parked her car at the familiar parking lot behind the two-floor commercial building. There was a little pedestrian shortcut to get to the main entrance of the building. The small complex of the hotel housed a beer garden. Next door was a pizzeria and a French-Greek restaurant called Galleria. 
The walls were painted in orange and white with a beautiful flower garden at the front of the complex. It was a painter's dream. While getting closer to the main entrance, Martha noticed that there was something different than what she had expected. There was no sign for Galleria at all. The Galleria was gone. She stared at the vacant space noticed on the window or off where the Galleria used to sit. She was speechless. She did not know what to think at the moment. Next door, the pizzeria was full of customers having lunch. She was probably standing there for a few minutes with everyone next door watching her staring at the empty space. Suddenly, she felt someone's touch on her shoulder. She instantly turned around. There was a woman with a friendly face standing next to her. Miss, miss, hello? May I help you? May I ask you something? Hmm, yes. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just looking for something. Um, I'm not from here. By the way, do you know what happened to this place? Martha was still in shock. Well, they closed last month because they couldn't pay their mortgage. Are you friend of the owner or... Um, yes, I know him and his employees. Thank you for letting me know what happened. Wait a second, the woman was staring instant in Martha. I think I know you. May I talk to you for a minute? Her face changed, her smile disappeared, and the tone of her voice sounded less excited. The woman became more sincere. Martha was looking at her and wondering what happened. All of a sudden, she remembered her face. She realized that was the repeat guest. Her lower lips started to shake. She could not look at the woman in the face. She thought about apologizing or just letting her go. Did she remember too? Martha wanted to go away and never come back. Sandra was very polite. She touched her shoulder again and looked at her eyes. Will you come inside with me? I'm having lunch with my husband. Please, I need to talk to you. Martha mouth turned into desert. The back of her head started to ache. I hope you don't mind. I had something very important to say to you. Sandra's big brown eyes were inviting. They approached the table where her husband was sitting. He politely stood up and greeted them both and extended his arm to shake Marta's hand. Marta's arm weighed a hundred pounds. She mechanically shook his hand and introduced herself. Hi, I'm Marta, and I'm sorry to interrupt your lunch. Don't worry, Sandra and her husband answered. Honey, this is the young woman who used to work next door. Do you remember? Sandra started the conversation. She used to work uh, for Sasha, and he is the one. Uh, and she is the one that Sasha always spoke about. Her husband just nodded with understanding, but he didn't say anything. Martha felt very uncomfortable, and wondered why she even accepted the invitation from this woman who she insulted a long time ago. She wanted to know more about the how to find Sasha. She was worried about him and what kind of trouble he was in. Maybe she could help her somehow. Did she ever? Uh, uh, did she, she did not have any answer yet, but she was hoping that Sandra would lead her to in a safe direction. There was a time when we spoke about you a lot in Galleria, Sandra started, especially after you left Germany for good. Sasha was sad because he lost one of his best employees, but at the same time he also understood why I could why it could be better for you to leave. Sandra's warm brown eyes became black hole. Her hand began to shake. I was praying to God to give me a chance to apologize to ask you for forgiveness. Martha's stomach began to feel squeezy, but she didn't know why. She wanted to turn around, but her feet were planted into the ground. She knew she needed to stay.
The third entry in the So You Think You Can Write series is my own story, titled The Drag. I'd like to thank Scott Freed, who you heard earlier, and Cassidy Havens, who will close out this edition of The Agent, for their inspiration for the main character in the story. Uh, Good evening, everybody. As most of you know, I am Jared Berman. Um, I chose the piece which I'm about to read, uh, which I'm calling The Drag, uh, for a few reasons. Um, For one, I think it's my most focused work to date. Uh, I'm proud of most of my writing, but in some cases I think I attempt to put too much into one creative piece. Uh, And I feel that this is the most successful in terms of wrangling in and focusing on a particular idea. Uh, But primarily I like the story because for me it sums up uh, a problem for a lot of people my age in their 20 going on 30s, uh, a sort of haze and wondering how you ended up where you are and is it too late to turn around. (laughs) At 9.15 that morning, Jocelyn began to panic. Her appointment was in an hour and she couldn't be late. You'll have to wear it up, she said to the dour face in the mirror. She did her best to make her hair into a neat bun and be done with it. It was time to get busy and finally earn some money. Scraping by these last six months made her regret her escape from the last job. The minute she walked into Martin Tech, she knew she should have turned tail and never looked back. Carpet tiles the color of condensed milk, sickly yellow fluorescent lighting, and a sea of cubicles with nothing but the hums of computer fans and tapping keys might not have been enough to discourage her, but the empty, lifeless faces of all the employees should have raised a red flag. It was a steady, pay- it was a steady paycheck, but barely enough to pay her student loans off, along with her share of the rent. Finishing up the last sip of tepid coffee, she went over the checklist in her head: hair and makeup done, coffee taken care of, her father's beaten-up old attache-, attache case for keeping up appearances by her side, and her purse filled with keys, an emaciated wallet, lipstick for touch-ups, and the necessary aspirin. Everything was set for her day. Only her legs refused to get in line and march her out the door. Why did I even bother getting an English degree if this is how I'm going to spend my days, amongst the throngs of drones pissing our sanity away in this thankless, go-nowhere hellhole? She frequently asked herself. Doug, another minion in the editing department, would greet her every morning with, Another day, another fifty cents, huh? When she first started, she took the quip as a playful jab at their bosses, but as the months rolled on, the sad truth became evident. Doug, an unmarried man in his 40s with a disheveled crown of hair, had been working in the exact position he was in for 10 years, and this was his only way to cope with his life. Each day, he would make the hour-long commute from the basement studio in his cousin's house in Bensonhurst to Martin Tech. (laughs) Jocelyn witnessed the tragedy of his life day in and day out and felt sympathy for the man, just not enough to try and make conversation with him. A chuckle at his lame joke each morning and a nod when passing each other in the hallways would do. Jocelyn had to get out. Opening her apartment door to make her way to the interview on time, the weather reflected her enthusiasm. A blanket of gray clouds enclosed the sky, leaving a bone-chilling spray of moisture in the air. With a knot in her gut, Jocelyn soldiered onward, trying to avoid the damp pools collecting on the sidewalk. She just couldn't quit. She had some savings, but they wouldn't last very long without any revenue, and everything in the city was obscenely expensive. Moving back home was no real option. Sure, her parents, struggling themselves to glue together some semblance of a retirement fund out of what was left from the market crash, would welcome her back, but that seemed like admitting failure. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. Your 26-year-old daughter with a degree from NYU, which you so graciously chipped in for, can't make it in the real world and is going to be living in your house, eating your food for the foreseeable future. 
It just wasn't going to happen. She'd have to find a way to get fired. Approaching the 52nd Street station, Jocelyn's mind drifted away from the job interview and towards her selection of music. She ascended the iron staircase, flakes of paint peeling off all over its edges and fetid moisture dripping on her overcoat from the moldy awning. She thumbed the device in her pocket, attempting to find a song that didn't make her wretch. The buds in her ears began to chime in a revoltingly sweet melody, promptly followed by the falsetto wailing of some pop star or another, and she could bear to listen she could not bear to listen any longer. Skip. You're going too fast, reprimanded Jocelyn's supervisor Rohini, a fair skinned Indian woman not much older than her. Pushing her horn rimmed glasses back against the bridge of her stern nose, she continued. We expect you to edit 30 entries an hour, and you're averaging 50. Rohini pointed to a chart filled with statistics she had just printed out. Oh, I'm sorry. Have I made any mistakes? Jocelyn was stunned. She considered herself a perfectionist. Tilting her head back and touching her neatly cropped bob, Rohini responded, Well, no, we haven't found any, but that's not the point. At the rate you're going, you're bound to make mistakes. It happens with a lot of the editing staff. The absurdity of that first interchange stuck with her, especially three months later, when she was reprimanded for going too slow. It was then that seed of her plan came to her. She couldn't just stop showing up to work. She dreamed of calling Rohini a bitch to uh, to her face, but that wouldn't do it either. There were ways for the company to deny her unemployment, and that would mean the entire experience a complete waste of time. It had to appear that she was incompetent without being negligent, dangerous, or insubordinate. Instead, she would steadily, but not too obviously, slow her rate of work. That would do the trick. Halfway up to the subway platform, she reached the cage turnstile and began to fish her metro card from her purse. Unzipping her powder blue wallet, Jocelyn hoped today the machine would be kind to her. As she dragged the crisp plastic through the reader, she felt a strange, sludgy grip slowing it down as if someone had stuck gum inside. The gate did not budge. Without turning around to look, she became increasingly aware of the growing line of people waiting to get through the turnstile, their gazes singeing a hole through the back of her best professional attire. The entire trestle shook as a seven train began to pull into the station above. She knew she had to act quickly. Swipe. Nothing. Swipe. Please swipe at this turnstile again. Undecipherable shouts from the street level where angry commuters were piling up shot through her headphones. At last, her card registered, and the gate let her through. Rushing up the stairs to get to the train, she heard the persistent beeping of the turnstile below as the others futilely attempted to tame the machine. Four agonizing months passed before Jocelyn got her comeuppance. Her entries were full of typographical errors, she would mismatch clients' information, and she was not going fast enough. Finally, on a particularly sunny Friday afternoon, she was called into the office for the last time. Handing her a novella of grievances and very official-looking forms, uh, she was sent, uh, sent to Human re- uh, Resources for approval. Rohini explained that Martin Tech would no longer require the, the Jocelyn's services. Jocelyn did her best to feign shock. She picked up the tome detailing her ineptitude and made her way to the Human Resources Department, where she was told how to apply for unemployment. As the subway door snapped behind her, she sighed with relief and found a seat. Her ears now bellowed with an embarrassingly sophomoric ballad from a band her old boyfriend turned her on to. No thank you. Skip. She thought she probably shouldn't be listening to any music in the first place and would be better off reviewing the packet of information she gathered about the industrial catalog company with which she was about to meet. I have time, she thought. Once we've passed Grand Central, I'll give it a skim. She hated having the headphones in without anything playing through them. This somehow seemed to enhance the ambient noises around. Old men sneezing, children screaming in their strollers, parents ignoring them while they carried on conversations on their cell phones, 
and it made her feel like a fraud, like the beggars and buskers knew she only had them in so she could plausibly deny them eye contact with a few coins she had. She opened her attaché and removed the packet. Tri-State Register, the leader in manufacturing solutions. Opening her purse, she removed a small white pill from a plastic bag and placed it on her tongue. Swallowing it dry, she thought, maybe this time it won't be so bad. Thank you. The last story excerpt from So You Think You Can Write comes from Christina Rodriguez, a fellow BOW student. She reads for us her piece, Wash Away Your Worries, Child. Today I will be reading uh, to you, Wash Away Your Worries, Child. And uh, there was a reason why I titled it. I thought you'll, you'll catch on as soon as I keep reading. It was an evening. It was evening time. The clouds were closing in. Big round pumpkins with evil eyes on the side of the road. Witch statues outside my porch blowing back and forth in the wind. Children dressed in mysterious costumes, running around with buckets in their hands, shouting, trick or treat, smell my feet, give me something good to eat, leaving long trails of chocolate candy. My mom decided the whole family should take a mini vacation up to the Poconos located in Pennsylvania. Between the rain challenging my thoughts on what to wear and the cloudiness increasing my emotional pain, I thought to myself, there was absolutely no way I can enjoy myself at this place. I don't want to go. Forget about it. I'm not going anywhere. I'll just simply convince my mom to allow me to stay. My stepdad is home anyways. He really joins us, but I don't blame him. As I'm passing my sister's doorway, she looks up. I glance at her with an evil eye. Seven steps down until I confront my mom with my, situ- until I confront mom with my situation. So many thoughts are going through my mind at this very moment. Ma, are you busy? No, baby, come in, she said in her motherly-natured voice. My heart begins pounding 90 miles per hour. As I slowly open the door to her room, I shout out, Ma, I don't want to go. Can I please stay here? In my mind, I'm thinking, wow, that was really good, Christina. She can't say no to this face. Christina, you can't be serious. You have not started packing yet? Please go upstairs and pack because we're not going to be waiting on you. Walking out the room, my mom whispers, Is this about what happened between you and Justin? Yes, Mom, it is. I feel so drained. I don't know what to do anymore. She tells me, Baby, just come with us. Trust me, everything's going to be all right. I I sure was not expecting that. As grouchy as I already was, she just lit the fuel to my fire. I can't believe this. Everyone's Everyone's out for me. Now you, now you might be wondering what happened to me in my last relationship. Well, if you really want to know, the person I was dating for two years broke up with me through a letter. I found the tightly sealed envelope initialed HM on the top right underneath my, underneath my front door after work. He said he thought it was going to be really hard on him if he confronted me face to face. As if that alone wasn't a huge slap in the face. I read the first three sentences, but I just couldn't continue reading all the selfishness he wrote. Folded the letter in half and put it right back in the envelope. I was cursed. Cursed for life, I thought. Now back in my room, I start picking out clothes to pack in my suitcase. Twenty minutes later, Mom knocks on my room door. I hope you're ready. We're leaving now. Talia, Isaiah, come downstairs and start walking to the car to put your things in the trunk. Now y'all behave now. Have fun, my dad says. Everyone hops in the Jeep, and we speed off. Here's the thing. Every year for Halloween, I get the privilege of sitting in a packed car truck for, for four long, miserable hours. 
Although we have taken this trip more than seven times, even with the new GPS, my mom, who is usually the driver, seems to always get lost. Between the loud screams of, are we there yet, coming from my younger brother and two cousins, and both my mom and aunt going at it about directions, I couldn't tell if it was all a dream or reality had just set in. I had just, oh, sorry, yeah. I had just escaped from a horrible two-year relationship, and my sister thought it would be better, I would be better off surrounded by the people who mean the most to me. Not giving it another thought, I went with the flow and convinced myself that I was going to have a good time while we were all out there as a family. I closed my eyes. In tune with my R&B playlist playing loudly on my iPhone, I fall asleep. An hour later, I'm awakened by the loud voices that were surrounding me. Finally, after all the nonsense, we make it to the check-in office. My mom gets out the car to get the keys to the villa, hops back in and smiles. Ma, why are you smiling, I ask, while making my way out of the so, t- out of the so tight drools all over seatbelt. Because we're finally here, guys, she said. The sound of my mother's voice suddenly, suddenly sounded like music to my ears. We pull up to the front door of the villa. The door to the car unlocks. There I was, rushing to climb over the seats to find my right foot in a muddy ditch as I stepped foot out the car. Standing there, speechlessly, looking confused, I look up at the nubliest sky. A drop of rain touches my left pupil. Great, it's drizzling. What's next? While smudging my black eyeliner and mascara all over my face. Usually, I don't have to experience such a mess when I'm out here, but obviously this wasn't my weekend either. Just like it wasn't my weekend last weekend, nor the weekend after that. There I go again, thinking that things couldn't get any worse, and this crap happens. I knew I, sh- I should have stayed my ass at home. Mom, the keys please. I have to pee. While the keys drop into my sweaty palms, I pull my sister, who was 18, just like me, out of the car, and we start walking towards the front door of our beautiful rented villa. My cousin, who just turned 15 two days ago, begins chasing us down the narrow path, yelling like a madman. Where are you guys going? Wait for me. My cousin yells in her whiny voice. As we run fast enough to get away from her, we approach the front door. I turned the key and we ran in as quickly as possible. It was nighttime when we had arrived, so you can bet it was, a, it was pretty dark inside the house. Shortly after, we hear banging coming from outside. As, I star- as, I, as startled as we were from that loud banging, I unlocked the top lock. My best friend and I rapidly found our way to the room we had chosen to sleep in. This room was located downstairs. Not only did we have a porch that led to the back woods, we also had a huge jacuzzi in the bathroom, which had several control options, one for the lighting and the other for the airflow. I always enjoy the fantasies of being able to have one in my own home, and now it's time to celebrate my big break. I thought to myself, ah, this is such a wonderful feeling. To think, I had horrible gut feelings about coming out here from the get-go, but I guess I was proven wrong. I really can dig this lifestyle. I, I turned to my sister. I'm parched. Come on, let's go grab something to drink. We run upstairs to the kitchen to grab us a cup of soda. My sister grabs the cups from out the glass cabinet, and I grab the Pepsi liter from out the cold fridge. Placing each item on the counter, I decide to get the drinks ready while Talia finds a scary movie to watch on the big flat-screen TV hanging above the fireplace. As I'm pouring the drink into the cup, I start noticing a moving shadow directly out the rectangular window, which was right above the sink. Cautiously, I take a peek out. I thought, hmm, I don't see anything. Maybe it's just the wind blowing the tree branches back and forth. I'm tripping. 
Toot Hard knocks at the door. My aunt opens it. What are you guys screaming about? Is everything okay? Is everything okay? No, there's a man in the back of the house. A man, you say. All three of them burst out in huge laughter. I don't understand. What's so funny? It was us who freaked y'all out. Relax. I mean, I was relieved that there wasn't a perv out there. But Lord Jesus, it was an obnoxious... But Lord Jesus, well, look at there. The sun is coming out. It was an it was an obnoxious plan that was never funny. However, succeeded in putting a smile on my face. And that is the end. Oh, great. And the correlation I just want to make with my paper is in the beginning it was uh, drizzling, it was cloudy, basically I was depressed and down. And so that's why I named my, um, I titled my paper Wash Away Your Worries Child. And then if you notice towards the end, towards the climax, the sun came out. I was laughing. I hadn't laughed all day at all. And then just that one little, you know, scare, the one little trick got me to smile. So basically anything, you know, anything's worthwhile. Thank you. Rounding out this edition of The Agent, I am pleased to bring you an untitled pantoum from Casty Havens. Cassidy is a graduate of NYU's School for Media, Culture, and Communication, and she works for a public relations firm here in New York City. Untitled Pantoum. Let's eat the flowers, he says, and he's talking about mescaline. Why am I still living? Someone shouts into the crisp winter air, and he's clutching a course to his chest like a baby. And he's talking about mescaline as he rubs my thigh in the iridescence of the neon lights. And he's clutching a course to his chest. Like a baby, I cry when I don't get what I want. He rubs my thigh in the iridescence of the neon lights. In my bedroom, his sweat rains down on me. And I cry when I don't get what I want. What I want is almost always too much to ask. In my bedroom, his sweat rains, rains down on me. And let's eat the flowers. He says that what I want is almost always too much to ask. Why am I still living? Someone shouts into the crisp winter air. Thank you so much for joining us this time for The Agent. If you'd like to participate in the next edition of this podcast, please contact me at jberman at iqmail.mcny.edu. That's j-b-e-r-m-a-n at iqmail.mcny.edu. For The Agent, I'm Jared Berman, wishing you a great semester. Keep writing, and we'll see you next time.